If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Gradients Podcast. Today, I am here with Amanda Daring. Am I saying that right? It's Daring? Yep. That's a fantastic last name. And Amanda is a founder and CEO of Nuance that builds technology and operations teams for startups, everything seed through B, private equity and venture studios. And she's been in tech talent and talent acquisition for a while now. Started as recruiting director at Northwestern Mutual, uh, was did talent acquisition at CompuWare, which was later acquired, director of people operations at Centair, which was acquired, and so has, I'm guessing, bundled all of these experiences up into the new company that she's founded, and she's here to share more about the journey and about hiring tactics and philosophies with us. Thank you for joining us, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. So... I like to start at the beginning of just what was going on in your life when the idea of nuance was first conceived. You have this slew of successful kind of talent and people operations roles, and then now kind of looks like taking your first swing at bat in the founder seat. How did that come about for you? Great question. I always say my founder's journey was sort of three things combined all at the same time. I worked in a company I loved with a team that I loved, but my job started sort of changing into maintaining things rather than building things. I would not put maintenance at the top of my skill set list. I like solving problems. I like building. At the same time, I had worked with a lot of really brilliant software engineers who were kind and candid enough to tell me, hey, we love this. We hate this. We too many exclamation points, like, here's what we think you were trying to say, it made no sense, right? Like, I just got (laughs) a really consistent amount, wonderful, helpful feedback and understanding, getting a really pretty good understanding of engineers and the engineering mindset all at once in that opportunity. And then finally, was starting to think, oh, this is a great way that I could combine these and start thinking about taking it to a broader audience, right? Working maybe with a, a wide variety of clients. And then finally, my agency experience to date when I was in-house when we work with agencies wasn't always amazing. I felt it was like, here's someone who has the keyword you said on this piece of paper, and now I'm going to call you every day and insist that even though you've told me this person, I don't even know why I submitted this person, right? It was, it was, agencies tended at the time at least to like make my job harder rather than easier. And that just felt it was shouting opportunity, right? To do something a little different. Well, so you had this first person experience kind of on multiple sides of the house. And at the end of the day, you're looking back, I think I could do this better. I think I could fix a lot of these things that have been brought to my attention. And so did you start with just that inclination of let me taken at bat at building what I think is the best version of this process? And were you thinking about that more from an agency standpoint? Or how did that next step come about? I think at first I was thinking of it like, 
oh, I hope other people will pay me to work on this. I think I was thinking actually a little bit initially as like an independent contractor, like maybe I can find enough to keep myself busy, but I'll get some variety. And it happened within those first few months that some of those same engineers that I worked with that were so honest with me, they went on to other companies, they brought me in, my former employer hired me, and it, it shifted from I can keep myself busy into, oh, there's opportunity here. I should be thinking about building my own team. And that evolved. I found business partners who had some great community connections. And so then, then we became a real business, a small but real business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting because especially when you're starting at the point of like, oh, maybe this will just be like an individual contractor thing. At that point, you're not thinking about the org. What was it like building that early team? How did you decide who you needed first and what were some of those early ways that, that you started surrounding yourself with the team? Sure. Pretty classic early story, right? Some of my first hires were people I had worked with before who knew me and were kind and willing to take a chance on this new enterprise. I think I've followed a fairly similar journey of needing some really similar to many other startup founders where in the beginning you want generalists who can move really fast, who are fine with us changing things a lot. I spent a long time, probably that first year or two, thinking about how do I take this process that at this point is sort of intuitive to me and how do I make it explicit? How do I make it repeatable? <laughs> how do I look for those qualities in the right kinds of recruiters that are going to want to do things that I care a lot about, right? Like personalizing messaging or I take sourcing really seriously. And there was certainly some trial and error there. We've had people who maybe thought they were going to love it in a small environment and then not so much, but have narrowed down on some of those key elements that make somebody a fit at Nuance and then also what tools we have to equip them with. Yeah. And to your point, it's interesting because your company is doing the thing that you already do. Like you're saying, you have this intuitive sense and you almost have to eat your own dog food as you're recruiting for your company that recruits for other companies, as it were. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about that, about what does the perfect process look like? And you mentioned like sourcing being really important to you or the messaging being really important to you, how you came to value the steps that you did over the course of having so much experience with it. Sure. Yeah, I think it's somewhat eating our own dog food. And I think it also just to add another like say, so ended up being sort of a cobbler's kids have no shoes situation, right? Or like right. our recruiting would come at the end of the day after all of our client stuff happened. And, you know, that's right. classic services business, right? You either have too much work or too many people. Where I design an ideal process where we're landed now is I try to keep the steps, honestly, to a bare minimum. There is nothing that kills enthusiasm in recruitment like time. The longer you have something like stretching out and waiting, and maybe you're doing interviews once a week over the course of 10 weeks, you'll just... The way I always think about it is you just never want time to make the decision for you. You want to be in a position and you want the candidate to be in a position where we're making our own decision rather than we waited too long and someone lost interest or we lost interest or we lost track of the process, that kind of thing. So I think keeping to a minimum amount of steps for us, that includes about three steps. So not saying like have one call and make job offers I'd right, <laughs> right. when I say minimal, but Secondly, I think is being really clear on at each point in a process, what you're actually looking for, how you're going to understand that element of fit, and who's going to be in charge of deciding whether this person has that or not. 
one of the more common mistakes I make, and it's so easy to do, or I've seen people make, and it's so easy to do is like everyone, maybe you have four interviews and every single interview, the, the person is getting asked the same 10 questions, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're just sort of repeating ourselves rather than thinking about, okay, this person on the team has exceptional depth in candidate management. So we're going to really have this person ask the most questions about how do you keep your candidates informed? What kind of systems have you put in place? I like interviews to be conversational. I don't think that, especially in something like recruiting, right? In anything really, you want the experience of the interview process to be as close to the job as it can be. And in the job, we're not necessarily like peppering people with hardcore intense questions, right? What we're probably expecting somebody's able to do is think quickly on their feet, be warm and friendly and conversational, build rapport and relationship quickly. And so I try to model in our own process what we want our recruiters to bring to our clients and bring to our candidates, right? So we do plan ahead of time, what are some of the signals we're going to be looking for? And then we try to have each interview be a blend of some of those pre-planned things. I'm not going to leave this conversation without knowing about X, Y, and Z with leaving some room for the conversation to flow. Yeah. So it's not just like a full-blown interrogation. Like you sit there and you answer my questions. This is interesting where you're talking about the bare minimum. And one of the things that we talk about with a lot of our founders and our clients is the conviction piece. Can you reach, what is the quickest path to conviction? How many touch points, how many data points does it take to reach 100% conviction that you're that this is your person? And it's not always obvious, especially when you're hiring for this versus that. What are the actual, to your point, what are the criteria that we're actually looking for? Who is the point person for making sure that that criteria is accounted for in the process? Where do you start? Are you kind of building all of it at the same time? How do you think about that path to conviction and splitting those things. Do you have frameworks that you walk people through to help them orient them as they're designing this process? You have a scorecard that we start with that is pretty classic by competency and then by ownership in that competency, a sample bank of questions specific to that competency and what I sort of define as signal, right? And so what I mean by signal, people have heard this expression, right? Signal versus noise is let's not get super caught up in, are they friendly enough? That's so easy to do in something like a recruiting or a sales search, right? They were so nice. (laughs) And that's cool. That's part of it. But also you need to be effective and also you need to be efficient. And also sometimes being really nice can cover up for maybe a skills gap. And we're a small team. So everybody's got to really be... at an A, right? Or coming in equipped to a certain level. And so thinking about what are the signals we're going to look at? All right. For me, one of those signals, for example, and would I love it if I interview a recruiter and they listen to this in the future, is do they source in their own ATS? Are you thinking about candidates that you've talked to in the past? I think that tells me because it's A, not that it's oddly uncommon industry-wide. B, it's effective, right? Here's a list of people previously interested in speaking with us. We should consider starting with those. (laughs) So we kind of decide ahead of time. It's not no outside of obviously huge ethical things or things going wildly off the rails. None of these questions are in and of themselves a deal breaker, but they just help us get get a holistic picture. And they help me think about like what one of our core values is to show versus tell. So what I mean by that is, okay, it's great that you said this thing. 
let's not tell people the opportunity is exciting. Let's show them a list of awards. Let's not tell people like there's a lot of growth opportunity. Let's tell them a story about the last person in this position who got promoted. And I want the same thing in an interview, right? Let's not say that out of source. Let's talk about how have you done that? What was really hard? Where'd you get creative? Tell me the thing you're the most proud of, right? I like to think of it as sort of giving people a time to shine. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. The show versus tell. I'm an English, I'm an English major. It's all they always tell you uh, show versus tell. And I never thought about how how poignant that is, even in the interview process. And so it's almost like I'm thinking about it now. It's almost like game design. Like you start with the scorecard. Like what does a success look like in this interview in particular? And what is kind of the questions, the obstacle course, as it were, that this person has to clear? And once you're set on that, then you know that conviction comes out the other side, maybe. You have this idea of the, I really like this idea of the bare minimum and of like these three steps. What does the other side of the spectrum look like of what would you consider a bloated interview process? How do you know when you have too many steps, I guess? Sure. That's a great question. What are some signals? I think too much repetition is a signal. I think especially if it's around things like on the resume or so that would be one, right? That we find we're asking people about things that are on, we're on the fifth step. And we're asking them about basic things that are on their resume. <laughs> like something has gone awry, we've missed something, or we maybe we should have had a stricter gate there. I think one thing is that sort of just one more <laughs> sentiment. So it's either just one more conversation or just one more other option to look at, or just one more without being able to really specifically identify what the hesitation is. And I'm sure this happens to all of us, right? Sometimes we make a gut feel and then we, then our brain tries to fill it in as though it's like, nope, this is pure logic, but it might've been coming from a gut feel. And that's not a bad thing, right? Founders should definitely be listening to their gut feel. But when you have somebody that's like, well, I'm not sure, but they don't know what it is they're unsure about, that would tell me that we probably need to understand the job a little bit more rather than adding step after step versus saying, hey, you know what, I'm realizing one of the things that we didn't get into with this person that we have a clear understanding about this other person is how much business development they've personally done. And I want to ask questions about that, right? That's totally different. But I would say any sort of vague, just one more. <laughs> right, yeah. It's typically an indicator that you have too many steps. I would also say it might just be that the steps aren't the right ones. If you find that you're at the end of three or four interviews and you don't have the answers you want, I tend to think about this in general with interview process, internal meetings. I like to think of it. When you were a kid, did you ever have that where you get a new toy and you have to like get rid of one? You don't just get to accumulate. That's sort of how I feel about steps, meetings, stuff like that. Like, okay, if it's really important, let's add it. What are we going to get rid of? What's not serving us versus sort of compiling it all into a clunky. <laughs> I can totally see that. I mean, we've definitely seen processes with five, six steps. And these are startups. And I feel like there's always some balance. You know, when you ask them about it, it's like, all right, well, you want stakeholder buy-in. Maybe it's their team. You want their team to feel like they are, have representation. Maybe that's an additional question here is how do you balance that piece of it where there's maybe more stakeholders than there are steps in the process? How do you decide... Yeah, if you've been faced with this, what is that negotiation? How should people think about that philosophically? Yeah. Sure, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think 
I alluded to this earlier, but I think defining at the beginning who is actually deciding and who is informing. And I have actually a third category, which is who is there to answer questions for the candidate, right? Maybe there's somebody who's going to be a peer or some sort of relationship to this new hire where they maybe don't have the subject matter expertise to interview with them, but they probably have a lot of great insights that the candidate is going to want to know about, right? So I kind of, I think of that as informational. So who's deciding, who's sharing an opinion, but ultimately not deciding, and then who's there more for information, to give information. And I think having people understand those roles ahead of time is important. And then a tool that I find really helpful. So in Scrum and software development, there's something called sprint planning. And there's an exercise called planning poker where people sort of anonymously estimate how long something is going to take them. And I've shamelessly ripped that off and used it (laughs) for recruiting. And so especially companies with, with a lot of voices, I suggest that they do an interview retro. So what that means is after the interview, nobody discusses their feedback with anyone else. That's the most important thing. We've all seen it go down where nine out of 10 people were sold and then 10th person says no. And then everybody is afraid of being the one who missed the red flag. And suddenly we're swaying each other, which isn't good decision making, right? It's just group thing. So no one discusses. Everybody writes down and I like to do this on post-its because I'm old, but <laughs> I'm sure there are tools that you can do this online. <laughs> but everybody writes down their scores. So maybe we agree ahead of time that we're gonna rate someone on one to five on team, one to five on skills. I always ask people to include one to five on potential. Like how quickly, if there are gaps, how quickly do we think this person can get up to speed? Everybody writes down their answers first. Then when everyone has made their own opinion, then you share. And that can really save a lot of time because you might find that four of the six people are ones like, please don't make me work with this person for whatever reason is really not a fit. And really quickly then you're like, great, we know. Yeah. It might be that everyone's at a five and it's great. We know we need to move. It might be that you have a mixed bag, but then you at least know what to discuss and why and where it's coming from versus this open-ended like, so what did you think? Yeah. (laughs) Where people's opinions are kind of shifting in real time with the flow of conversation. Like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Oh yeah. Very much so. Because no one wants to be the person who's like, well, I met them for 30 minutes. I'm not willing to stake my whole, I liked them, but I'm not confident enough. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to die on this hill. (laughs) That was a half an hour conversation. Yeah. No, that's true. And Maybe another piece of this is you've been at at companies of different sizes and scale, now building your own company, scaling your own company. What is your viewpoint on scaling and expansion? There's people who were like hyper growth is the way. And then there's kind of the careful, make sure your feet are on the floor of the river as you're crossing type of idea. But yeah, how do you think about that? Great question. For Nuance specifically, I'm interested in growing as fast as we can grow while keeping the quality and caliber of our work high. I'm not necessarily interested in being a thousand recruiters and understanding the just that it becomes a numbers game at that kind of scale. And I'm not particularly interested in a numbers game in that way. That being said, I like the feeling of momentum and I think growth has sort of natural energy effects within an organization. So I tend to find that we find that right line when we're slightly uncomfortable (laughs) and we're feeling growth that opportunities are being created for people within the team 
to try new things, to stretch their skills. But I'm not necessarily personally on a path of like, let's be a thousand people in three years. I admire founders who do that. I think it's cool. I just don't. That's not my vision for this, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote that I heard when I first started in tech that said, growth for growth's sake is the logic of a cancer cell. And it was always, <laughs> it always stuck with me. And I feel like having a reason for your growth, like what is the business problem you're solving with talent, with growth arenas versus just like, oh, we got room to hire. Let's just keep hiring. And I like this about the energy of growth and higher ceilings, I think, are, are better for everybody and generally in a growth oriented culture. OK, so you talked a little bit about, about this culture piece. What is the culture and the cultural thesis that you started with that nuance and how have you built that into your process? Sure. Where we started was in really thinking about coming from a place of empathy in the searches we're doing, right? I think there's some friction between engineers and recruiters and (laughs) some of it well-deserved, some of it not. But I think understanding that, first of all, someone's career decision is a huge decision, right? It's one of the biggest changes they can make in their life. And we shouldn't underestimate that as well as on hiring team side, right? Especially, you know, if you're talking to a team of five and they're hiring their sixth person, that sixth person, it's gonna be a big deal. Or you're talking to a first time manager who is growing their team for the first time, there are real stakes to them making that decision. And I think when you have empathy on, on both of those fronts, it only helps with this. Internally, we call it empathy as a default. We also, and I talked about this earlier with time killing enthusiasm and my obsession with it, but, <laughs> We define that as high urgency always, understanding that time will get in the way of a lot of these deals. And also understanding that when somebody has brought us in, it's probably because someone has more work than people. Uh, It's because someone is missing dinner with their kid because they need help, because they're up late doing something, or they're missing out on growth for their own business because they don't have the right team to support it. There are real stakes there. And so those are the, the ways that we've framed those in asking our team to stay engaged. I like that combination of empathy as a default and the urgency. I can totally see it combined in that example of somebody's missing their kid's dinner. Like that's empathy for the client and gives you the sense of urgency on how to move. Okay, so moving towards the image of a company, there's the internal culture and then there's the external brand. How important do you think that is to a a company And how maybe some of the ways that you've seen it influenced or deliberately kind of amplified for the better? Sure. I think that the most powerful influence on brand is actually alumni. So I I guess I sort of knotted those two things up, but I think offboarding and making sure to give people a great experience as they're leaving is undervalued, honestly. I think some of the most impactful voices are people who have left your organization. It won't always be perfect, right? We're all human. I can say for myself, I've been in this business for 15 years and there are still times that we got it wrong. (laughs) People are people and they will surprise you or will misread a situation or it can happen to everyone. We just keep refining those skills. So I would first of all say, you know, paying a lot of attention to alumni. I think having evidence to offer people about what you're saying is really important. I think the days of being able to say like, exciting opportunity with a great culture are done. I just don't know anyone who looks at those. There's just so there's an inherent skepticism, I think, that employee perspective employees have. 
I don't think it's entirely unfounded. And so I think being incredibly specific about the ways that what you're trying to build exists internally when you take that message externally is just is extremely important for clarity. Yeah, I think that's a fact of just like there's so many exciting opportunities out there. It's like really what is the mission that I, that you're trying to get me to get behind type of thing. We talked to somebody recently who was saying, uh, shout out to Jay Fulcher. He was saying that people don't want to be managed today. They want to be led And the difference between finding great leadership versus great management. Like management today is just a little less inspiring for the workforce today. They want to be a part of something. And for the manager too, right? I mean, I think those some of those stats are really alarming that leaders are amongst the group who are burned out as well. Right. And so <laughs> trying to figure out how to equip those people, I think is becoming more challenging and more core to yeah. building a successful team. And probably wrapped up in all of this is just the new remote world that's seemingly here to stay. Is Nuance fully remote as an organization? We have tried to centralize in a few different hubs. I think I like to think of it as sort of hybrid accessible. I need to catch okay. your name, but not just hybrid. We're like, we come into the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I think that's too prescriptive in most cases. And I think that's a good way to drain energy for people. For us, I like people to have people if they can nearby them to get together and hang out, to yeah. co-work when they want to. But I like for that to be opt-in and that'll be our future too. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's like a constellation model or something. Where, yeah, I, I like that. Because we have something similar. There's a couple of us here in the Bay. There's a few of us in LA, a few more in Austin. We have one satellite in Chicago. We try to get out to him. But yeah, no, I think there is a balance. There's no substitute for the in-person. How has this changed, if at all, the way you think about these stages or even the onboarding, creating a great experience, creating that level of conviction on the candidate side, but in a remote environment, ultimately? Like, how do you think about that for your teams? Sure. We do. We have been committed for a long time. And this was true even pre we were always okay with remote work. And so this hasn't been a massive shift for us. And we've been pretty dedicated to trying to bring people together three times a year in person. So we do like a retreat model, right? Where you give people some concentrated time to hang out and get to know each other. But obviously you can't wait for that all the time every time you have a new person. And so for onboarding specifically, I think about it in four frames. One is that you want people to have information. So like, what do I need to understand Literally, what do I need to know how to do this job? What are the systems, the tools, the like, what do I ask for stuff? Two is relationships. You want to figure out how to get people to feel comfortable and connected quickly. So whether that's some companies do this by getting people together with a buddy, like Unstoppable Domains, for instance, they have everybody do a fun video with specific questions and put that in the Slack, all kinds of ways that you try to incorporate something that feels personal enough that people can connect to it, but doesn't put people on the spot that it's so personal that it's like, whoa. <laughs> Tell me your darkest fears. <laughs> yes, I have seen, I, in my, I think some companies have gone a little too far down that path of like, what's the most traumatic thing that ever happened oh, to you? God. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's what, it tells in front of the whole 200 company, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking things more like, oh, do you have a pet? Do you have a right, picture? Right, like, yeah, <laughs> some softball, yeah. Exactly, but kicking off something that is like, hey, I'm a real person, we're real people. Right. Something around that sort of trust and friendship, that element. And now there are exciting tools for that. One of my business partners actually has a tool called Like-Minded that helps people find friends at work, which is really fun. 
So think about relationship camp and then thinking about it from a values element, right? What are some of the things that we care deeply about? What are some of the things that are implied in our culture that we should make really specific? So I'll give you an example actually from when I was at Centair. So classic to being a team of engineers, people at Centair really liked efficiency and they really liked automating things. And so it was, it was sort of like, no one ever said that. It was not on any mission statement stuff. No one was like, we love efficiency, right? But it was inherent in the culture. And for somebody to thrive quickly in the culture, they should understand that. So figuring out how to say to people like, hey, if you see anything we can automate, let us know. Like giving people that opt-in to say like, hey, this is something we care about in in a, a tangible way. And then finally, I think one of the most underlooked things in onboarding is helping people find some quick wins. So figuring out people, I think burnout is tied to a lack of winning. I think engagement has a lot to do with this sense that I'm winning. I think for the most part, most people want to do a good job and feel like they're doing a good job. So when people are at sort of that three month mark, the newness is rubbing off. They're starting to see some chips in the paint. Like we all have at every company and the stuff we need to fix. Those are some of the moments thinking about like, Ooh, like do they have friends yet? If they don't, how can I get them that? Have they had any wins? If not, where can I find a spot to help them find a win? I think that can do a lot for onboarding and just helping people feel bought in. Yeah, no, I love that. That is so true of like victory. The winning cures everything, but people need those those little wins. Our partner, Brian here, he says, if you're going to give somebody a hurdle, give them a ladder also. I feel like that's definitely the onboarding experience is like, here are all the hurdles that you'll have to jump over to be a part of, to do a good job here. But then being able to give them kind of those easy wins, like, yeah, get that momentum going, as you said. Yeah, and I think it gives people that sense of identity, right? You want them to feel part of something. And so that combination of challenge and achievement, I think the more you can make your onboarding feel like tradition rather than tasks, Hmm. the better off it'll be. (laughs) And just where, yeah, to this point too, where the win is not just frivolous. It's like you've contributed to what we're doing here and tying it in with everyone that way. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay, so we're coming up towards the end here. What are some things that you're excited about for the future of Nuance? You've grown the company, you're a real business. You've far surpassed the uh, individual contractor, independent contractor scenario. Yeah, what are some things on the horizon that keep you excited about what you're doing? Oh my goodness, great question. So much. I feel really honored by the clients we have and that we've grown this business to date almost exclusively through referrals. Wow. And I look at us trying to bring people together to solve interesting problems. You ever see that those cool videos of NASA people cheering when they get to space? That's how I feel yeah. when we put a team together and we're watching them do something hard, right? We're watching them predict heart disease. We're watching them build a venture capital firm. We're watching them solve all these different problems that our clients are solving. So continuing that always fuels me. We just had our first cohort of junior recruiters that we put through what we call the Buildery this year. So I'll be excited to repeat that next year. I love the idea of giving people that development early in their career. Yeah. My first recruiting job was like, here's a desk and a phone, please get 10 interns. And I was the only recruiter in that office. So they couldn't have taught me even if they wanted. And I'd never been a recruiter before. And it was great, but it's fun to sort of be on the flip side and be like, oh, what are some things I could just explicitly tell you to do instead of you having to learn it on your own? (laughs) No, for real. There's no MBA course for hiring. There's no major for it. Absolutely. Internally, we have the Build Academy where it's like, how can we take the collective knowledge of this group and just keep passing it to the next one and the next one? 
Which I guess that's a question I do want to get to you before you leave. You've been in recruiting for so long and not just recruiting all the other areas, but actually recruiting recruiters to be good recruiters at your firm now. There's so much depth in that space for you. What are some questions that founders should be asking when they're hiring their first recruiter? What are the high signal things about hiring your first talent person that you feel like are just need to haves? Great question. One of the first questions I would ask is what percentage what percentage of their hires to date had been from applicants versus what percentage of their hires to date had been from them like going out and sourcing someone? It's not that I think there's exactly a right or wrong answer to that question, but if you're an early stage startup with a soon to be amazing, but yet to have employer brand, hiring a recruiter who knows how to process a lot of applications and doesn't necessarily know how to source is going to be frustrating for you and for them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that would be one. The other would be, I would ask a lot about what kind of environment they would find frustrating, what kind of environment they would do their best work in, you are hearing from someone that they really disliked their last environment because the goals posts kept moving or the type of person we were hiring kept changing, kept having to re-sculpt the, re-sculpt the job. I can understand for many recruiters why that is frustrating. That recruiter is going to struggle in early stage hiring. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that comes with the job in startups for sure. <laughs> and then finally, and this is maybe specific to me, but I think many founders I know probably share this value. I would talk a lot about how they've leveraged technology to date, whether in automating things, whether in understanding what's possible, whether it's in frankly like using the million available resources to find out what is going and how do I know about it, right? Particularly if you're going to be off building the business and you need this person to be ramping up, I would ask a lot about their ability to leverage resources in front of them, or you might really, it could be easy to end up with someone who maybe requires that instruction when you don't have time to give it. Yeah. Yeah. The resourcefulness piece of at the beginning. I think the other thing too, that I think feel like you have implied this entire time, but maybe we should highlight again here is just the cultural alignment piece is like this recruiter will likely talk to more people about your company than you will. And if they are not culturally aligned and they're not kind of giving that high fidelity signal out there that you want your company to be represented by, that could be a, a huge blow up down the line. Absolutely. Okay. Quick fire rounds. Who out there in, in the world of startups and, and talent and hiring are you inspired by someone you want to give some flowers to maybe uh, yeah, that you think highly of? Oh my goodness. Well, there are a lot and I'm going to feel like I'm going to miss some, but Stacey Zapar is like a household name for a reason in recruiting. She is so amazing and is always doing great work, always championing the community. I think there are some founders really starting to think a lot differently about growing a team, thinking about maybe we're coming into this economic conditions where it's less about perks and more about getting people excited about the mission. So I'm excited to just be on Twitter these days and sort of watching those conversations unfold. Stacey came to mind for me first. Okay. What's one thing that I haven't asked you about that that probably should have or something that maybe we didn't get a chance to talk about that we can uh, table for a round two or something? Oh my goodness. We talked about so much. I feel like we covered some ground. You know what I would say is how to use some of that show and tell and outreach messaging, Mm. how to get someone's attention in a short, concise way. 
I would say we didn't quite touch on, but I feel strongly about. <laughs> yeah, no, it's everybody's bombarded with messaging, like hyper literate society from social media to emails to it's everywhere. So yeah, trying to stand out in the sea of messages, especially for the top talent. But this has been great. I agree. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and your insight. I think our community will get a lot out of this. So thank you so much for taking the time with us. Thanks so much for having me. This was a treat. Awesome. All right. Until next time. Cheers. Thank you. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.